I'm David S. Dawson from the Intellectual Podcast, a show that spotlights creatives from all walks of life. Part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other incredibly geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Stephen, Chris, and SP. Welcome to an all-new episode of the official Gunna Geek Show. I am Steven, and with me, of course, is Chris. Where's my tree fitty, Steven? Also have SP. I'm excited to be here for three reasons. One is the Vikings did not lose another Super Bowl last night. Two <laughs> is I get to learn about TweetDeck tonight. And three is we get to talk about Charm tonight. So it is a great night to be on the GunnaGeek.com show. I do think that that's that's true. Really great night to be on the GunnaGeek.com show. However, for the listeners, I think we should advise them that next week's episode will be even better for them because we won't have an episode and we know how much they enjoy that. I know Chris and I enjoy not having a podcast with you. Yes, I know. Wow. That's you weren't supposed I'm, to break it to him that way that we were going to make the better oh, GunnaGeek.com podcast. <laughs> BetterGunnaGeek.com. Look it up. I Fun don't at, actually. I don't think it exists. <laughs> Find at BetterGunnaGeekPlus.com, right? Yeah. yeah. GunnaGeekPlus will now redirect to BetterGunnaGeek.com. And we'll be GunnaGeekPlus going forward just to build off Steven's brand name. Well, then, I feel like I should just walk away from this episode. I say that every week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start off here by learning all about Twitter. And uh, I think the official name is uh, Twitter Plus. I think that's what this is, right? It very well possibly could be Twitter Plus that we've got coming down the pipe. But yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about Twitter tonight because there was an interesting story I saw on The Verge that was sourced from Bloomberg. So I ended up reading both articles that there might be some changes coming down the pat down the pike rather for Twitter. Now, What's going on here? According to the article on Bloomberg, there are teams inside Twitter that are researching ways for the company to offer paid subscriptions. We've seen subscription models and all sorts of things potentially coming to Twitter. So the real question is, we've got this free service. We've all been using it to tweet random GIFs, make fun of things, or do whatever we want on there. Why is Twitter potentially exploring the idea of subscriptions? Well, if you were not aware, and probably were aware, but if you weren't, the majority of Twitter's revenue comes from targeted advertising. That means they serve up promoted posts, aims at specific groups of users. That business has grown in years at a slower pace than that of competitors such as Facebook or Snap or things like that. And currently, Twitter's slice of the digital ad market globally is at 0.8%. 0.8%. Compare that to Facebook, you're probably talking massive orders of magnitude difference. So what is it that Twitter is considering doing to try and make people feel like, hey, I want to give Twitter some extra money of mine to, to enjoy this service, to make it work better for me? One idea is they're going to consider a concept of tipping, the ability for users to pay the people they follow for exclusive content. And 
we've seen similar things like that before. If you're familiar with that, they have subscriptions on YouTube where you can also become a paid subscriber on YouTube and it opens a separate tier. You can subscribe to folks on Twitch and you can use like your Twitch Prime subscription to give them things or you can give them bits or get exclusive content. Or it's almost like thinking of a Patreon baked into Twitter is what they're talking about there. I don't know if that's really going to take off because people wanting to share exclusive content with folks are already using other platforms such as, you know, Patreon, like I mentioned, where they have things that are hidden behind the paywall and you have to be a subscriber and a paying subscriber to be able to get to it. One other idea that's been floated around and amongst others that we'll get to is potentially charging for the use of TweetDeck and other advanced features such as an undo send or weird profile customization capabilities. So if you're not familiar, TweetDeck was an awesome third-party Twitter client for ages. Twitter then bought them out and shut down the individual apps, but you can still get to an online version that Twitter maintains at tweetdeck.twitter.com. It's really kind of cool because if you're managing multiple social media accounts, you can do them all through that interface. And even better, you don't get ads when you're in that feed and it doesn't change your Twitter default sort back to the most popular things. It's always in timeline order. So yeah, TweetDeck, pretty powerful. Not a ton of people use it, And they're thinking, possibly put a charge in for that. Bloomberg also had a list of pretty much all of the different changes that are coming. I don't want to deep dive into all of them, but we'll kind of touch on the headlines for each of them. Potentially for a subscription model, getting rid of ads in your feed. Lots of consumers would like that. Uh, Here's what I'll tell you. You can do that yourself with uh, extensions in your browser if you wanted to, (laughs) or things on the DNS level using your routers, things like that. Removing ads from Twitter is not something... I would personally pay for because I can already do it if I want to. Like we mentioned, the potential of making TweetDeck go behind a paywall, which would be really annoying. And I see Suncast in the chat room saying he'd stop using Twitter if they pull TweetDeck. We mentioned before also exclusive content, similar to what we've seen with Patreon and YouTube subscriptions that are hidden behind that paywall. This one was interesting to me that got floated around that Bloomberg reported. Higher quality video, but only if you are a paid subscriber, not necessarily Hmm. What you can view would be split into separate tiers, meaning Steven puts a video out, I'm a non-subscriber, I only get it 480p, and someone who subscribed gets it at 1080. My understanding of it was if you are a subscriber and you are sharing video, then it will be put out there at a higher bit, at a higher uh, fidelity for people to to look Hmm. at. So for instance, if they set it up so that we could live stream the show direct onto onto, uh, Twitter, which you could theoretically do with Periscope, but that's potentially getting sunsetted. If you're a subscriber, That would mean Steven could send a 1080p feed to Twitter. Meanwhile, if you're not a subscriber, you would only be able to send a 480p feed to Twitter. That sort of makes sense to me a little bit. And I don't think it's as problematic either, because remember Twitter, a lot of people consume mobily on their mobile devices. It's something they flick through while they're in line at the store or when they're on a bathroom break at work, things like that. So doing a different level of video for subscription models, that's not necessarily a bad idea. They're also potentially, and this one seems really strange to me, making verification something you can sort of make easier if you're a subscriber. Twitter verification is already a nightmare. We know how that goes. It's it's really random how they decide who should be a verified Twitter account user or not. The rules change from day to day. And now it's seemingly one of the thoughts is if you are a subscriber, it makes it easier to get verified. Maybe that means you're getting a premium level of customer support. I don't know. I don't know that this one will actually end up happening, but it is one of the things they have reported. 
A couple more things real quick. The analytics. There are some free analytics we can get to as basic Twitter users right now. I've looked at it before when I've had a tweet that kind of just got retweeted out of nowhere and that got a bunch of likes to be like, what the hell is going on with this? I've just been curious looking at, but there are businesses that rely on Twitter-based analytics to say, oh, here's this product we're trying to put out there. Here's the kind of interest we've gotten into it. And if they can give you a deeper dive on analytics, I don't necessarily care, but a business user might and putting that behind a subscription model doesn't necessarily impact me, but sort of makes sense Hmm. for something that would be a more premium level of Twitter. And then finally, this one is dumb and it reminds me of MySpace so much. Various different consumer features this could include things like custom colors, hashtags, or stickers for user profiles and posts. Can I make These it ca- so that when someone comes to my Twitter profile, it starts playing an MP3 song? Right. It's just like MySpace <laughs> is returning. I don't understand what they're doing here. It's kind of a step back, it seems to me. But these are some of the things that are being floated around. And one thing to keep in mind is this isn't new. Twitter has talked about in all of their earnings calls before wanting to find a way to pivot out of just doing advertising for how they make money on the platform. There's been talks of subscription models before, but this is the most detail we've gotten on some potential things that could be coming. There are rumors that tomorrow, I think, as we record this, that'd be on February 9th, they're going to be doing one of their investor earning calls that they might talk more about what some of these presumed premium features are that would come to a subscription tier on Twitter. The important thing to note here, based off the analysis I've seen on The Verge and on Bloomberg, is if you're a power Twitter user and you're enjoying what you're doing now, interacting with people, it doesn't look like they're going to be shifting this into a model where you have to pay to be on Twitter because that would be dumb and they would lose a bunch of people. But it looks like they are going to lock a bunch of future content behind a subscription paywall. And what do you want to bet the long wanted edit button on tweets will be one of those things that gets locked behind a subscription paywall. So we have a perspective here. We're all personal users of it. We use the Gunna Geek Twitter, but there's not a ton of traction there. So we don't really have to deal with the same kind of things. as. Well, we're not doing like (laughs) massive back and forths and running contests and stuff like that. Compare it to like a cable networks, Twitter account and things like that, where there's constant streams of things or they're using it for customer service purposes. We're using it to announce things on the network, to retweet things on the network. And it's a lot more informal. So we don't necessarily care as much about analytic tools and things like that. I think that's a fair statement. I think from our perspective, the three of us that are on the panel today, these changes okay, that's kind of cool that you might want to do that, but it doesn't really impact and make us want to subscribe, I would argue. Or am I speaking out of place or any of these things that you guys would pay a monthly fee to Twitter for? Part of what has made a lot of people deem Twitter a dumpster fire, you both have heard that term recently in the last couple of years, is, I think, stemming from the verification issue. And I think if they were able to verify more people, even if it was through a a monetary donation or a subscription or something like that, I think it would make the space a little bit more palpable to more people. I'm not saying it's the right answer across the board, but I'd be interested in seeing where that goes because accounts like mine, I mean, I'm not attached to my real name, but if I put a credit card on it, yeah, sure. They've got my name and they can verify me and have my address and that sort of stuff. Uh, You know, I'm 50-50 on it. And do I use a Twitter, uh, what do you call it, client? No, I don't. I used to, but I don't anymore. I just use Mm -hmm. the inherent one that is on my iPhone and the one that is the web-based browser. That's all I use. And I'm okay with that, but I'm not a power Twitter user. 
The thing that concerns me that they might do one day, and this is just Chris making a wild theory as to how they may try to monetize, is if you want to use a Twitter client other than the official Twitter app, you have to be subscribed to Twitter Plus or whatever we're going to call it. Meaning, if you like using TweetBot on iOS or if you like using Talon for Android and you want to keep doing that, they're going to lock things down so that you have to have a Twitter Plus version of an account or something like that. And I think that would suck and I would not pay to do that because it would it would I'd feel burned. Yeah. Uh first off, uh I want to note right away that uh obviously I care about analytics because my Bernie Sanders meme got 1.9 thousand likes. So obviously I am running a high business by by getting 1.9 thousand likes. Sorry, that's my mm. highest Twitter accomplishment. Um secondly, uh verification. It, I ha- highest yeah i know right okay yeah uh secondly verification i completely disagree with sp i think the ship has come and gone for verification care i think that people also unfortunately society has stopped being smart uh any verification that that any benefit to verification a couple years ago i think people are too as society people are too dumb now to pay attention to and i say that because unfortunately i see so many facebook spam accounts that are like, here's an example, the Daily Show, right? Like you go into any Daily Show post and you'll see Daily Show contest account and you've won a prize and they've just gone and they've ripped off the Daily Show uh, logo. And it's amazing how many people go in there and go, oh, really? I did. And like they're genuinely excited, even though it screams fake. I think that people just unfortunately don't pay attention to that stuff anymore. And and it sucks. And then the last thing is um, I want to mention that I don't know that I know a lot of people that do that are loyal to Twitter um, compared to some of the other platforms out there. I think that there are some, but I think like if you were to go and ask somebody who has a Facebook and a Twitter, I think more often than not, you if you were to say to them, you're going to lose one of these. Are you OK with losing Facebook or are you OK with losing Twitter? They would probably prefer to lose Twitter. It just seems like a lot of people are on Twitter because it's there. Um, it's it was easy for them to sign up to, but they just don't have a lot of loyalty there. So I think that definitely the business focus is probably where they want to be to try to make money. Because like you said, I don't think that a lot of consumers are going to pay to play on Twitter. I, I just don't see it because of a lack of investment um, that it seems like the people I talk to have with Twitter. I mean, here's how if you want to go the a-hole route, if you're Twitter to try and monetize, but keep your user base intact is basically make it for all these business Twitter accounts. You unlock a whole different level of features that's Twitter plus or something like that that allows them to interact differently. And you leave pretty much the core Twitter experience intact for your standard users. That way you're putting the bulk of the onus on businesses and stuff like that. But that's not going to make them enough money. They have to find something that makes it appealing for me as average consumer X to be like, oh, my God, this is totally worth my three bucks a month to Twitter so that I can have my fancy Comic Sans manuscript font in any tweet I send out or some nonsense like that. And to some people, that will be important. So it sounds like I'm kind of making light of it. Some people, that's going to be really interesting and really important to them and more power to them. But for me, I look at it and go, Twitter is a place where I go and interact with people to talk about movies, to complain about stupid things on the Internet and make dumb jokes. There's not a value there enough for me to attribute a monthly fee to Twitter to keep doing that. You brought up the higher quality video for posting on there. And when you brought it up in my mind, I was going, I don't give a rip. I don't care. And then I thought, SP, you're a hypocrite. I pay Discord 
whatever it is, $4.99 a month so that I can have access to a few other things like you were just talking about emojis, but more importantly, so that I can post longer or bigger files. Mm. So I don't have to worry about that. So I'm already doing that, but it's in Discord and I see other benefits to Discord than I do to Twitter. It's tough to add a value proposition on something like this that's been free for how many years has Twitter yeah. been around? I mean, I think it was around when I was in college. So we're talking. I just got my 10 year anniversary thing. I was like, I've been on Twitter for 10 years. Wow. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. So Not really. I think it's interesting. Twitter's trying to find a way to make more cash out of it. I just don't know what the value proposition is at a user level, what you can do that makes me go, oh, geez, I really want to subscribe to do this. And I don't think the right solution would be to take away things that we can currently do and move them to a subscription tier because there are other social media platforms out there. Twitter has taken off, but we know they all sunset. Remember when Friendster was one of the biggest things out there? Then Facebook came and ate its lunch. It's just a matter of time until something comes and becomes the new Twitter, for lack of a better term. I think we're already there. I mean, Instagram, even though it's owned by Facebook, has gotten a lot of traction. TikTok. Even though I don't have, let me be clear, I do not have a TikTok account, but those videos you see everywhere on other social media platforms. Yeah. I mean, so that, that's I've fair, seen them. but that's a different kind of interaction, though. That's you're posting a video or a picture. Twitter is all more is much more about the written word. And that, that's why I enjoy Twitter a bit more than Instagram. And I don't have a TikTok because I can have a conversation back and forth with someone. And sometimes it can be someone who's an actor or who knows something about something in the industry I'm curious about. And that those are kind of the fun things when like you tweet something to Mark Hamill and Mark Hamill replies back. You're like, okay, that was kind of cool stuff like that. And it's not quite the same, that conversation when it's, I'm just going to throw out a bunch of pictures I took of my food out into the ether and someone may respond. You All right. Well, now I want lunch. Ether. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you look at my Instagram uh, at the Chris Farrell, it's basically cat and food pictures because that's all I put on it. <laughs> I, I was going to say your selfies. dog and your cat end yeah. up on Instagram quite a bit there, Chris. Yes. That, that's about all I do on there because I, I don't like selfies. I don't get it. And I don't go anywhere because we're in the middle of a pandemic. So why would anyone want a selfie of me sitting in my recliner or at my desk? I do. I got it. I got into my first Instagram argument yesterday. Ooh, wow. It's not as juicy as you might think. Somebody no. on the idiot boat page that I was following or whatever posted a, a video of a kayak almost getting run over by a, a speedboat. And I was saying, you know what? The kayak had the right of way, you know, it, and <laughs> you know, a bunch of people started, you know, <laughs> dogpiling on me. And then my post got a lot of likes. So th apparently it was a linchpin in the boating community over who was the bigger idiot, the power boater that lost control of his boat and ended up on the shore or the kayak that was fishing in the middle of the channel. I mean, whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, I look forward to finding out what they do with this because clearly they're looking for money. Aren't we all? <laughs> all right, let's go on to the next thing, which is an update. Finally, about nine, right? Oh, yeah. So we're talking about uh, SN9, in fact, because we can count, right? Except for SpaceX <laughs> can't count because they go 9, 10, 11, 15. So a lot has happened in the last week. A lot has actually happened in the last few weeks. And I've been trying to keep everybody up to speed with what is going on in space, space development and space activity. So here is another short rundown of everything that's happened, including and 
spotlighting SN9. So there was drama around the FAA and SpaceX's SN9 test launch, and it reached the apogee late last Monday, February 1st. I did talk about it on the podcast. I also said I needed to look more into it, and I thought it had something to do with state safety. It turns out it did. So the FAA finally granted approval to SpaceX to launch the SN9 following public process disapproval from Elon Musk and congressional testimony by the FAA. The issue dates back to December 2020 when SpaceX applied for a waiver to exceed the maximum public safety risk for the SN8 test flight. The FAA denied the waiver, but SpaceX went ahead with the SN8 launch anyway. Now, due to the violation, all testing that could affect public safety was suspended until A, SpaceX completed an investigation into the incident and took corrective actions, and B, the FAA approved of the corrective actions taken by SpaceX. Now, once approved, SpaceX did eventually launch the SN9 late last February 2nd, 2021 from its, Chris, you ready for the drinking game? All right, let's do it. From its Boca Chica complex. Take your drink. The test was deemed as successful by SpaceX when the three Raptor engine prototypes soared to an altitude of 6.2 miles or, you know, Stephen, it's 10 kilometers for you. Ah, perform- so yeah. re- real measurement. OK, thank you. Uh, yeah, they're both scientific measurement because they're static, but OK. Performed a horizontal flip to simulate re-entry and navigated itself back to the Chris, are you ready? Let's Boca do it. Boca Chica landing pad. There's your All, counter, everyone. There we go. All was going well until one of the two Raptor rocket engines failed to ignite and provide adequate thrust to right the craft and slow it down enough for a landing. Now, there was a couple of tweets. We were just talking about Twitter. There was a couple of tweets talking about what actually happened. The uh, rockets couldn't provide enough of the leeward thrust to get it righted on time with only one rocket engine lit. And then my pal, Everyday Astronaut, he's not really my pal, but Everyday Astronaut on Twitter, made a comment of, why didn't you light three and just shut one down so you would have your two that you would need? And Elon Musk tweeted his reply. Chris, this is one of the great conversations that you were having. He said, quote, it was foolish of us not to start three engines and immediately shut down one as only two are needed to land, unquote. So video of the test also appears to show debris being ejected from the area of the rocket engine that failed to restart. It still remains to be seen what caused the Raptor engine failure. Now, provided the engine failure is researched and corrected if needed, all looks to be on a path to a successful SN10 launch and landing later this month. So we're good to go. So FAA drama, safety drama, and a little bit of problems with the ignition of all the Raptor engines led to another rud, rapid on-planned disassembly of SN9. SpaceX was all, all cool with this. Now, Stephen, I know you were watching. Chris, were you watching during the event? I did not watch it live, no. But you saw it afterwards. I did see it afterwards. Wasn't the explosion cool? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, Chris like big boom, to paraphrase <laughs> Jamie Heineman. Right. Yeah, that, so that was, was fun to watch. 
Now you tuned in like uh, what thirty seconds, two minutes into the flight, something like that. It was a six minute flight. Yeah, I, I saw your message just after it had launched, and then I thought, okay, well, I'll just keep watching from here. I actually had to quickly jump back and watch the launch, and then jump back ahead, and then watch the boom. And the boom was fantastic. It was nice to see it explode. Just goes to show that uh, incompetence that is Elon Musk. I mean, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I. I I mean, I'm glad they're going. That's why they do these tests. It's like, okay, well, maybe we only get two engines started out of three. Maybe we need to start three. And maybe they'll find out since there's going to be more engines on the final version, maybe they need to start four or five and just shut down as long as they have two active ones. Well, yeah, I, I was obviously kidding. Um, that is one of the things that I, I've always credited SpaceX with is the rapid development here. I think that they are very, very responsible for pushing us to advance. And I've said this many times that I think SpaceX is the one that really leaved us forward with finally getting some development in this sort of stuff. And things like this seem really silly. It's like, okay, yeah, why didn't we launch three and shut one down? But it's just part of the process of them doing things so rapidly and so quickly, being willing to, in the testing phase, have things fail, fail fast, that gets them to, to the more polished product quicker because they're not afraid to overlook things, learn from their mistakes and move on and do another rapid thing. So, um, yeah, I was completely kidding. I, I think obviously someone's going, yeah, why didn't we do that? You know, Elon said that, but I'm sure many other people are saying that was really silly of us or whatever the reason is. But I think it just helps us uh, continue to move forward when they're failing fast. We'll say Elon Musk is very interactive with the SpaceX fans, including the people that are uh, hobby rocket scientists and whatever, like everyday astronaut, although there's a lot of professional credibility there. But there was a meme that he posted. I don't have the link for it, but there was a meme that Elon Musk posted the next morning because a lot of people were like, OK, well, it tipped over, but it wasn't right. So why didn't they just pull up? And so he tweeted a, a meme with SN9 just about to hit the pad and it was angled and the meme was pull up. And he said, <laughs> next time we'll try the pull up method. So I mean, that sort of interaction with everybody, it shows that he has a sense of humor. It shows that he is interacting with quite frankly, the fans of what's going on here and that he knows that a lot of people are interested in the development. So it keeps the interest going and it makes people want to watch the next one. Like SN10, I do expect to do the same test and land correctly. This is going to be a fun one to watch. Are they going to land on my house? God willing. Not yet, but it's coming, Steve. Perfect. It's coming. Perfect. Talking about other things that are coming, some quick hits on what's in store for the rest of 2021. We've been following the Mars probes as they approach. And in the next two weeks, matter of fact, tomorrow, UAE's Hope probe will attempt a Martian orbital insertion. The following day, China's Martian probe will attempt Mar Martian orbital insertion. And that might be followed by an attempted rover landing. NASA's Mars 2020 mission is due to arrive at Mars on February 18th, and then Perseverance and Ingenuity will be deposited on the Martian surface, hopefully successfully. And sometime later in February, the SLS, that is the big booster that NASA is developing, will have its Green Run Core Stage Test Mark II at the Stennis Space Center. 
Following that, Boeing CST-100 Starliner OFT-2 test should be somewhere in late March, March 25th to 29th. I've seen two different dates on that. SpaceX Crew-2 mission will launch on Mars March 30th to the ISS. And then Starliner CST-100 crewed flight test, assuming OFT-2 is successful, will be sometime in June 2021. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the James Webb Space Telescope is scheduled to launch on October 31st, 2021. So a lot is scheduled to happen so far in 2021. We'll see if it all does. I'm shaking my head no to James Webb. It's never happening. Oh, you think it's never happening? I think it'll happen. It's just a matter of when. Steven has grounded it. Uh, so where do I buy these things? Which store is it? Because you said they're they're in store. Uh, which store am I going to? Uh, you would be going to, I don't know, Elon Musk's online store. Have you found <laughs> it yet? Space Mart. I, yeah, I, I would love to get that. Or is it Space 10 Mart? <laughs> <laughs> also in the chat, Suncast is saying he's looking forward to their arrival and hopefully not their bombardment. I look forward to the crash as well. We'll see. We have three opportunities. Actually, we have five opportunities because you have the three probes and you have their uh, their landers on two of them. So we'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks. You know what? If we just bomb Mars enough, eventually the Martians will come out from underground. They'll, they'll be like, hey, leave us alone. You're being too loud up there. You mean Suncast? Yes, that too. That too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about some renewals with CW. This was something I wanted to bring up because I think it's odd. Last week, CW did announce that they have done 12 early renewals for television shows. Now, this might seem really weird to you because CW hasn't aired a lot of new content this year. They, they've had some things, but not a lot has, has gone yet. They had to push a lot of their stuff off to 2021 to launch. They announced that Walker, All-American, Batwoman, Charmed, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, Dynasty, The Flash, In the Dark, Legacies, Nancy Drew, Riverdale, and Roswell, New Mexico have all been renewed. That might sound very, very odd to you considering that just let's talk the superhero ones, the ones we like to talk here. Batwoman is a few episodes in. DC's Legends of Tomorrow has not aired yet. I don't think it has an official start date yet. The Flash kicking off today, next week, something like that. I don't know. It's coming up soon. Um, and then also, uh, I guess those were the only three ones that I wanted to talk about there. The other thing I wanted to mention, though, was that the new Superman movie has not, or movie, uh, TV show has not had information about a renewal or anything yet. So they've renewed all of these things here really early. And I find it very odd because several of these probably should have been canceled. And if it wasn't for COVID, I think they would have been like, and I say because of COVID, when we look at Legends of Tomorrow, today it was announced that, um, oh, I can't remember his name. Whoever plays Mick on there. Um, what's his name? Actor's name. Do you remember his name? Dominic oh, Purcell. Dominic yeah, Purcell. Dominic Purcell. Purcell. He, he said that season seven is his last for Legends of Tomorrow. And I think that's very telling to say, well, if that was when the contract was, probably where they were planning on ending. So it's weird to me that they're renewing all of these, but I guess that's probably because they just are going to have a really weird airing schedule. You can't judge ratings. And so I guess they're just going to play the safe route and just renew a bunch of things and see where next year takes. 
I think I think it stands to reason that we'll probably Uh-oh. see most of next year's television back on schedule, not just with CW. I think across the board, we'll probably see next year be back on schedule. And so it's weird to me that they've done all of these renewals, but I guess maybe it makes sense because of what they've what they've been served. I don't know. The Didn't opposite they? of the writer's strike, right? The writer's strike ended up, well, there's been a few, but the writer's strike in what, 2005 or whatever, ended up canceling a lot of shows. So this is actually elongating some of these shows that probably should have been canceled, but they, they probably had difficulty generating new content. And I don't know if there's going to be any upfronts. Pilot season, excuse me, is probably kind of rough because of pandemic restrictions and things like that. So that probably plays a, some part of that, some part in this. The other thing is, didn't they renew everything early last year too? Like really early in the seasons, they said, hey, we're renewing all of these things. Because I vaguely remember being really surprised there. Not a shot on the show, but Legends of Tomorrow, I was like, wow, I'm really surprised they renewed it. Not because I dislike it, but more just because it's always seemed like the odd one out. So it's kind of interesting to see it's getting a season seven. Is this season seven or is next season seven? I think this is season seven and then so next year is eight. It'll isn't get it? eight seasons like Arrow did at least. And presumably it'll be a longer eighth season than Arrow, which could be interesting. So, I mean, that's cool. And the interesting thing, though, is you read this list, Stephen. I was like, oh, there's only like one of those shows I watch right now. <laughs> oh, no. I'll be on. Sorry. This this is season five. No, for legends. this is season six for Legends. So, okay. so yeah. I'll be honest, I don't watch CW shows anymore. I just took a hard turn away from it after Arrow ended. Uh, Chris, I think a lot of these shows were renewed last year before the crisis event in the lead up to crisis Mm -hmm. because there was a lot of buzz around these shows right before crisis. And of course, we saw what I would consider to be the utter dismantlement of the universe after crisis. And I don't think crisis had anything to do with it. I think the poor writing and and the uh, uh, the storylines just fell apart after that. But that's my opinion. My opinion only. I think and- you're being too nice, if, I, if I'm being honest. I think that um, many of these were garbage and people put on their blinders. Because I shouldn't say garbage. Many of them had, had seen better days and people put on their blinders knowing crisis was coming. And, and I include all three of us on this. I think that we, looking back at how kind we were to some of these over the last couple of years... I think that um, I think that we we were t- too kind, especially legends. We I think we were saying it was a fun popcorn flick too long. As I think back on the seasons, so so one thing to keep in mind as you look at this list, we're not the target demographic. We've aged out no. of what CW's target demographic here is. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily matter as much that we're sitting here scratching our heads, being like, "Oh, I can't believe they renewed some of these things early." They don't necessarily care that we're watching or not because. They're not, we're not the target audience. If they catch some of us, that's great. But I don't, well, I don't know that the nature of this content though, I think that us not being the target demographic leads, lends itself more towards these shows being canceled. Cause I think that we are the target demographic for for these shows. The target demographics watching 
just in various different yeah. ways, be it on television, uh, CWF, well, uh, Netflix, things like that. I miss you guys Let's, doing Starling Tribune because I seem to remember the ratings indicating that no, people were not watching. I'm talking about these shows on whole. I'm not necessarily targeting just Legends or just oh, Flash. Okay. Gotcha. Look at the I, list of 12 shows let, we have here. Let's take Charmed, for example, because the girls, my girls were watching Charmed because the original one, they got into it in reruns or streaming or whatever. So we're as, as a father-daughter... We're like, okay, we're going to watch Charmed. So we started watching Charmed and I ran into the same issue with Charmed that I did with the DC shows. I was like, I, I can't watch this anymore. The, the writing was bad. The stories were bad. I understand the demographic of what they were trying to go through, but I just could not stand. Uh, it, it's the level up from teen angst. I, I can't stand teen angst, but it's it's like the, the next level up from that, the college angst or whatever. and. I, I just in the relationship drama and stuff like that. And that is their demographic and the girls, they couldn't do it either. They, they got out and I told them tonight cause I saw the, this uh, story in the notes. I said, Hey, charm got renewed. And they're like, you're still watching charm dad. I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I, I told you because I didn't know if you were They're like, no, we were out long ago. And then I went down the list with them with uh, Nancy drew and all American and Walker and they're like, dynasty. And they're like, we don't watch any of that, and they are in the demographic. Uh, interesting. So the only one I watch is the only one I watch is All American, and I really enjoy that. And that's because of Netflix. The first two seasons were on there, and I binged it. And went, oh wow, this is really fun. And now it, I just want to you know back up here a second here, and, and yes, okay, that's the point that you said, Chris, about these other series. Yeah, I was referring more towards Legends of Tomorrow and The Flash hmm. and Batwoman. That's what I was talking about. I don't have enough experience uh, with the other like. I've never seen the other ones. I'm not of that demographic, so I couldn't really comment on those, which is why I find it really interesting what SP just said there. So it's interesting. CW is actually pretty successful, as Chris was pointing out before, in that they're able to get this genre of television out in very low ratings. So they're really going after those streaming dollars. So They're able to stream for free but it's with commercials to anybody here in the United States. I know it's not ubiquitous throughout the world and that's how they're able to make these shows. Unfortunately, it does mean that the production budgets go down a step so they can't do what they were doing in arrow season one and season two with the script writing, the talent and all the effects, but they're able to do very cheaply stuff that I wish when I was watching TV in the 70s and 80s and 90s that they were able to do back then. Well, and the, the special effects and production budgets are going to be one of the biggest differences you see in the superhero shows here versus what you would on streaming. Look at like Titans on HBO Max. Look at WandaVision and the Captain uh, the Falcon and Winter Soldier trailer we just saw. The production values are sky high for these shows on streaming because they have a different kind of budget. They don't have to pull a of 1.2 each week on the Nielsen ratings or whatever to justify their existence. And, and that's what we're starting to see a shift towards. And I think you're 100% right. They have found their little niche with this kind of content that speaks to a powerful target demographic that can be advertised to really well, that advertisers are really interested in, and people watch it. And they can continue putting that kind of stuff out. It's, it's not the trash TV you'd associate with like reality TV kind of things. It's a step up from that. But it's not necessarily, and I'm not taking a shot, some of these shows are not necessarily like 
the highbrow entertainment you would expect. They're a popcorn show. You sit back and make, okay, I had fun with this. People, pretty people had their problems. They figured them out in the end and they moved on. That's what a lot of this kind of stuff is. Even the superhero shows are pretty people having problems moving on. You know, what's interesting though, right? Thinking about the demographic thing again, when Arrow was like really taking off and there was before it took a big dive down and the flash was doing well and legends of tomorrow was looking optimistic started off looking optimistic there was a lot of talk about the cw demographic having changed from what it was because it, it was this universe was birthing and it looked like there was no no stop of of superhero success on there and that was a big shift for cw which were more of these other type shows and so I think that it is really interesting to think about is that that this blip that was superhero and a possible shift for CW for a little bit looks like it's it's you know gone back towards their their old timey demographic of the people who were watching the 90210 reboot and things like that, right? I think they were smart. They rode the wave that was superhero stuff. And that's not to say the wave is over, but it is not what it was when we're talking like Arrow season two, Arrow season three, when all these yeah. other things were getting birthed. Yeah. And I'm not taking a shot, but it's not like they're must-see television like they were for a while there in the geek sphere. Now it's, I'll catch up with it when it's on Netflix, or I'll catch up with it when it's on HBO Max. So I think they were smart in the fact that they realized, hey, we can make bank and we can get a lot of people interested in these superhero shows, but we need to keep the other kind of content alive too, because that's our bread and butter that we're known for. So while the ratings may have started to taper off and they've got shows ending like Arrow and Supergirl and presumably Legends after some point in time that we've yet to figure out <laughs> they've been smart enough to make sure they had the other kind of content there too. And maybe they get lucky and peel some of those superhero watchers away to watch some of that other stuff because it appeals to them too. So they're very smart at knowing what their demographic is. It seems like to me, Legend? not all these shows are surviving, you know, like black lightning. It was canceled after this next season that, that was announced already. So not all of them are, are making it through. They're picking and choosing what they want to, stay on with and i'm just guessing it's because it's the available time slots that they have also my final shot on all this is just an interesting point that the canadian who does not have cw available to him is the one who brought this story forward uh first off you're assuming that these shows are not elsewhere available um, i know that they are and second you're assuming that i don't have cw and yes i do have cw so oh wow when did you get cw because you have you didn't have that no, before ha had it for for years but it's come and gone in different forms because it's a cable channel that is carried and then so before what was the predecessor to cw it was the UPN, UPN and the WB. Yeah. Yes, that's right. They merged and became the CW. The way these channels are often carried in Canada is they, they're often tied to a specific um, distribution method, like an affiliate or whatever you want to call it, right? And so for a, a while there, the only CW one that I could get was SD quality. And then that changed. Um, but it's pretty much always been in there, but I've almost always watch these shows on the Canadian distributor because A, HD, and B, it was more readily available. But no, CW, I, I, do have, I, I do have that and have had that for a long time. But the challenge was for a while, I could only get the SD, SD feed. Okay, and then you cannot get to the website, is that correct? That's correct. I, it's okay. geo-blocked, yes, that is correct. Yeah, you can get there, but it won't let you stream anything. It's like when I went to the CBC website to see if I could stream Kim's Convenience and saw, oh, no, I can't do that. 
Yes, exactly. But in any case, uh, I do find it interesting, these renewals. And um, SP made the interesting comment about Black Knight Lightning. I can only assume that DC's Legends of Tomorrow was renewed because it must be really cheap. I would like to know how screwed over the talent is getting. Their contracts must be really low. Really low. Yeah, because most of the original talent is gone now. And, and I can only assume that was... Like Brandon Routh, I think that was a contractual thing. Like they couldn't pay him anymore, so he had to leave. I don't know. He was disappointed, whatever it was, but uh, it's, yeah, not good. Not good. He gets to work with Nathan Fillion now, so he's probably having some fun. I, I'll watch it, though. I'll see. Uh, Bat, Bat, before we get off of this, I will say that Batwoman does show promise uh, so far. Oh, yeah? yeah, it does show promise this year. We'll see where it goes. I have lots of faith that CW will drive that into the ground as well. <laughs> I don't know that it's necessarily the CW, more some of the showrunners they have that have fair. their vision for how things need to go. And there is a complaint that some folks are making, and we're not going to need to get to it in here, that they are too woke sometimes on these CW superhero shows. And we don't need to debate <laughs> that here. We don't need to get into that. But there is a complaint that many fans have that they feel that way. One thing I think is... Okay, the thing with Batwoman, I will say, is it shows promise because they've maintained their pacing, which I didn't think they were going to be able to do, but I still think they're painted into a corner because of the weird removal of the main character. That is still a problem, and that's why I still say my prediction of it getting season two and season three and then cancellation is going to happen just because I don't know that they can pivot that story well enough with a whole new main character. I don't see it, and I I was pretty sure it was going to get season three because... I, just on the basis that they were going to give it two two shots with the new the new lead, you were okay with the pacing. I w- I wasn't. I'm just curious. You were okay with the pacing, yeah. season one, season two. I-, I thought that it was reminiscent of early Arrow pacing. Mm, I I think well, I yeah I I won't go into it. <laughs> Look, the worst thing that could happen is getting high quality content on streaming services because when you go and compare it to what you're watching on the CW shows, they do a lot for what their budget is. But then you start going, man, this is this is looking a little rough compared to what I was getting to see here because they dropped six million dollars on an episode of something you watched on HBO Max and could afford to do things and don't have to kind of pivot away from doing a cool fight scene because they've got the cash to do it or don't have to censor themselves because you can say what you want on streaming. You don't have to worry about the standards and practices or anything like that. So it's made it really tough. And I'll give them credit that they're still alive and kicking pretty well. They're keeping things going, but I think the streaming is probably the home for a lot of these shows because once people buy into it, they have more money to play with to develop them further. That's a double-edged sword. They'll probably start canceling these things when people <laughs> stop watching and we'll all be like, no, go back to CW because I know you'll keep it on the air. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's go ahead and move on to SP Space Symposium. Guys, I've been doing the Space Symposium for over five years now. Did you guys realize that as of last month, it's been five years? I thought that this was the debut of the segment. I thought this was episode two. (laughs) All right. I can see who slept through the last five years of SP Space Symposium. So we started even, (laughs) especially when he edits it. (laughs) 
So we started off doing the space telescope, started out with the Hubble, and then moved into space probes, the early orbital probes around Earth, went into interplanetary probes, and that's where we're at right now. And last time we talked about a United States space probe was in episode 357. I talked about Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. That was in the late 70s. Well, guys, guess what? Between then and 1989, there were no interplanetary space probes that were launched by the United States. Can you believe that? 11 years? That's not surprising. Well, Budget, I assume? Yep. It was yeah. all budget-based. It was because the NASA budget was being thrown into the space shuttle, the reusable space shuttle program, and which is interesting because that led into the faster, cheaper, smaller missions that came later under Dan Golden, which we will talk about the success and failure of those later. But in 1989, we returned, we, the United States, NASA returned back to interplanetary space exploration with the Magellan probe. This was an interesting one. It used radar to map about 84% of the Venusian surface, which is, by the way, 100% covered by clouds. So the only way that you can see it is through some other form of imagery. It was the first interplanetary mission to be launched from the space shuttle. It was the first interplanetary mission to use the inertial upper stage booster for launching. It was the first interplanetary mission to test aerobraking as a method for circulizing its orbit. Aerobaking? So, is that what it was? Aerobaking something? Yeah, well, aerobaking, aerobraking, it does get kind of warm in there. I, I think you can have some brownies after okay, that. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Magellan was actually the fourth successful NASA mission to Venus, and it was designed to be a low-cost mission as a replacement for a higher-cost canceled Voyeur mission, V-O-I-R mission, and it was lower cost by using major components from other programs. So this was launched on May 4th, 1989. It's interesting. So the next one that I'll talk about in the Space Symposium is the probe Galileo. And it was a shuffle between Magellan and Galileo on which one was going to be launched where, depending on the uh, planetary alignment at the time and unfortunately due to the challenger incident it really shuffled the deck of launches that happened after that and this was one of the launches that got shuffled around it wasn't supposed to be the first one galileo was supposed to be the first one but magellan was the first one it was launched with a total mass of 7604 pounds which is more than a fully loaded Tesla Cybertruck. It Long doesn't range work. or standard range. It doesn't oh. work, by the way. Actually, you know what? Chris brings up a good point there. If you were to add that on, it would sound better because you used to be like, GMC 4x4 crew cab, right? It was a big, long thing. And, and so you need to specify these things so it's a big, okay. long thing again. All right. This will be more mass, more weight, than a fully loaded tri-motor Tesla Cybertruck. Oh, that is so much better. Thank you. Thank you for appeasing my little mind. The little tri-motor thing <laughs> did it for you. All right, there you just go. Just the little things that get to Steven. You just made his night. Good. 
It was designed by Martin Marietta under the contracting guise of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. JPL did operate it out of their spaces. I'm sure the Martin Marietta personnel were involved in the whole thing. It was launched from the Space Shuttle Atlantis in the ST-30 mission. Space Shuttle Atlantis designation is OV-104, by the way. It was the 29th NASA Space Shuttle launch and the fourth for Atlantis. It was launched from Kennedy Space Center, had LC-39B, and as for a scientific measurement package, the big one that it had was just a big old radar. Had had this big radar that was able to do synthetic aperture radar, altimetry, and radiometry on it, and that was its main mission. It sadly left us on October 13th, 1994, after five years, five months, 15 hours, and 18 minutes of mission time when it was commanded to deorbit along Venus. Now, I, I haven't read anything to tell me why it needed to be deorbited, but I think they just wanted it burned up and they didn't want it uh, to impede further future missions. That seems like a likely excuse for aliens. Right. We can talk about aliens after the show. Steve. You can't talk about that. They're going to send Mulder and Scully after you. <laughs> so to save costs, most of the Magellan probe was actually made up of flight spare parts and reused design elements from other spacecraft. And here's a short list of stuff that was used. They took a spare medium gain antenna for communications from Mariner 9. They took a high and low gain antenna for communications from the Voyager program. They took the equipment bus from Voyager. The star scanner design was straight out of the inertial upper stage, which was designed for Galileo. It wasn't designed for Magellan. It had a radio frequency traveling wave tube assembly that was for the Ulysses probe, another one that we'll talk about later. It had an attitude control computer from Galileo. It had a command and data subsystem from Galileo. It had small thruster rockets for orbital corrections from the Voyager program. It had an electric power distribution unit from Galileo. It had a power control unit from a special P-80 satellite. It had pyrotechnic control from Galileo. The solid rocket motor design was from the space shuttle payload assistant module which was also known as pam different from the pan that you spray in your pan before you make eggs by the way and its propellant tank design was from the space shuttle auxiliary power unit so it just borrowed just these main components from all over the place and slapped them together they borrowed them or they they, they raided the storage closet is basically what happened here (laughs) nice So the main body itself was a spare spacecraft from the Voyager mission. So it was basically a pioneer body, the the later pioneer bodies, because that's what Voyager was. And it was just a spare one that was laying around. They're like, hey, we can use this. As I stated before, this was the first planetary spacecraft, which was launched from a space shuttle. I remember watching this, guys, where they, uh, they erected the probe from the bay and they pushed it out and then the inertial unit lit up and it was uh, propelled uh, into its transition orbit. It was the first one to use that inertial upper stage. And are you guys familiar with aero braking? Because if you're not, I can go into it. I will go into it for our, our listeners, but are you guys familiar with it? I am not. No. 
just so, the very basics. Yeah, so we'll just go over the very basics then. The aerobraking is when the spacecraft is maneuvered to skip through the atmosphere of whatever object it is trying to orbit or maybe use to decelerate. And it uses that momentum instead of having to apply rocket delta V and waste fuel in order to slow down. And it doesn't have to be for orbital insertion. You can use aerobraking to get lower in your orbit. Say you're going really fast and you're going around like Saturn or Neptune or whatever, and you have a return capsule you want to get back. You might think about aerobraking around like Saturn or Jupiter in order to slow down on your way in. So that's what aerobraking is. It's famously done in a few movies where there's a shield that comes out in front of a spacecraft normally with people on it and then it goes through an aero braking thing and then the people are in there and they're shaking and the heat's rising and stuff like that i think that probably would be about it but in the movies they get it wrong because gravity is on set like that and it just doesn't happen that way gravity doesn't turn on and off like a switch <laughs> so some key dates for this mission we'll go over that was launched on the uh, 4th of may 1989 the Galileo was launched later that year, and we'll talk about that. It was also launched from a space shuttle. It was inserted into Venus orbit on August 10th, 1990. In September, it started its first cycle. So its radar mapping was in five different cycles. The first one started on the 15th of May, 1990. The second cycle was the 15th of May, 1991. The cycle three started in the 15th of January, 1992. And cycle four started the 14th of September, 1992. Uh, 1993 is when it did its aero to obtain a circular orbit around Venus. So the 24th of May, 1993. Uh, the August 3rd, 1993 is started its fifth and final cycle of radar mapping of Venus, which led to 84% of the planetary surface being surveyed. Conducted a windmill experiment on the August 30th, 1994, and they did a termination experiment for a loss of signal on the 12th of October, 1994, and on the 13th of October, 1994, they lost signal and they presumed loss of spacecraft. So that could have been when you know, aliens came and, and picked it up, but as far as we know, it actually went into the Venus atmosphere and burned up. Now, it did have a couple of mission anomalies along the way, so we like drama with our space probes, right, guys? Heck yeah. All right. Is this like CW drama? That level of drama? It's TNT. We know drama. Yeah, in spacecraft terms, yeah, I think you guys are on the right path. So in January 1999, when Magellan was on its way to Venus, it had a computer memory problem. Now, the problem developed when an error was detected in a tiny portion of Magellan's computer memory as the spacecraft got ready to take a fix on a star to make sure it was pointing the right way. It was doing that star fix thing that you kind of see in the movies with astronauts doing in Apollo. So the arrow prompted Magellan to shift to a backup computer, point its solar panels towards the sun to increase the power supply and make sure it stayed in contact with Earth by slowing the rates at which it received commands and sent information. Now, the failure was originally deemed to be the result of an electrical corrosion at a junction between two types of material on a single memory chip, leaving the chip unable to retain data. However, they were never able to actually confirm that, and there was a couple other theories that came 
along the way. But basically, as of January 1990, it was working on its backup computer. Later that year, in August 1996, days after entering Venus orbit, Magellan suffered a communication outage that lasted 15 hours. After a second 17-hour interruption uh, a few days later on August 21st, 1990, the ground control sent up new preventative software to reset the system in case of such anomalies. So it was self-correcting at that point. So those were the two mission anomalies that I was able to uncover in my research of this mission. Now, scientific discoveries. This is the fun part. This is what it actually found. So it mapped 94% of the Venus surface. And this is a bigger deal than you guys might think at the surface of things, no pun intended there. So there was a geological groove on the surface of Venus that was longer than the Nile River. The JPL scientists said they didn't know exactly what formed the channel, which was about a mile across and ran for 4,200 miles. This channel was detected by the radar on Magellan and there were shorter channels to have been seen on different parts of Venus. But those were basically terminations in lava flows that they were suggesting they were carved out by lava from a volcanic eruption. But this large channel, the chief scientist of Magellan at the time, C. Saunders, said it was unlikely that it was lava, even at very high temperatures, would have had the flow rate needed to form this channel. And no similar channels are known to exist on Earth. To date, I don't think they have really discovered what they think created that because this next discovery is pretty cool. They found that at least 90, 85% of the Venusian surface is covered with volcanic flows, but Magellan's data suggested that despite the high surface temperatures and pressures, the complete lack of water makes erosion an extremely so, slow process on the planet. As a result, surface features can persist for hundreds of millions of years. So you'd think that this planet was just made out of lava, right? And that it was being reformed all the time, but actually it's pretty static. There are a few volcanoes that are active, but it's not as many as you might think. There's just a few that are active, like 30 or something like that throughout the planet. There, there It's not covered with volcanoes. As such, the spacecraft found that phenomena such as continental drift or the data from the spacecraft uh, indicates that phenomena such as continental drift are not evident on Venus and the highest resolution maps of Venus to date are from Magellan. So back in the 90s, this, this uh, probe tells us more about Venus than anything else that we know. And uh, next time, I, I'm going to tell you guys about Galileo. It was a mission to Jupiter, and it was also launched from the space shuttle Atlantis later in 1989. So guys, what do you think about Magellan, though? That's pretty cool that it went to Venus on a, on a low budget, kludged together, and it found uh, some interesting scientific information out about Venus. NASA ingenuity at its highest again. They can make a pile of scraps into something that does something incredible. I had no idea that this was like this in the chat. Uh, we, by the way, we stream the show at geeks.live. There's a live chat room. Um, I had made a joke that it was like, hey, boss, got a bunch of leftover parts. What do you want me to do with it? And then they built this like, that's cool. And pretty much. I mean, you have quite flight qualified hardware ready to go. Why not use it for something? 
I tend to think that this was a little bit more redundant than other probes mm. had been in the past. It was also interesting that this was the first probe in 11 years that we were able to put together on, on, and it was on low budget. So they were able to test out some things with this. I know why they did it and why, yeah. why there was the gap. Because at the previous launch, the aliens said, look, you get your junk out of our territory. And then they're like, you know what? We got to send a gift. So they gave it to them as a gift. So this was a launch for them to, to say, we apologize. Please take this as a token of our appreciation for you letting us continue. And that's what happened. I'm totally sure that's what happened. <laughs> I, I think it was better that they were able to um, shake out some kinks from interplanetary probes. Now, remember, probes like Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 are still active this whole time, but we hadn't launched a new one in a while. So this allowed us to get out some kinks on a neighboring planet instead of the next one, Galileo, that was sent to Jupiter, which was farther out. A little bit harder to correct or, or whatever. It's a little harder to get there. So we can always launch a probe to Venus every year, but getting to Jupiter, that's a little bit different of a launch window that you have to arrange. So I, I think it was a, a good thing that they were able to do Magellan before Galileo, but both probes were basically successful. And again, we'll talk about Galileo next time. Well, thank you very much for educating us on this. I do greatly appreciate it. Putting aside all of our my jokes. I was going to say our jokes. It was my jokes. Putting, yeah, putting, you're the funny <laughs> one, Stephen, not me. They're not jokes. They're not even funny. Uh, all of my comments are I do greatly appreciate it, SP. I enjoy learning about this stuff. And again, uh, you make it easy for me because I'm too lazy to do this research myself. Yeah, in our document, I, I threw a couple of uh, cool little pictures in there. There is a picture of Magellan in the shuttle bay that is pretty cool. I can drop a link to that to anybody that wants it, as well as some really cool animation of what the Venus surface looks like and a compilation map of what venus looks like so th there is some cool imagery that came out of this program and this is basically the modern age so all the probes that we had been discussing before up to like voyager one and voyager two i i put that in like the the, the history bucket that's before our time sort of thing but this was one that i was actually active in the space community for and we we actually have some good data from this as opposed to, I mean, like you would, good data is in modern data, like you can post it on the internet sort of thing versus just bits and pieces. All right, well, that's going to go ahead and wrap it up for this episode. Before we go, I'd like to give everybody an opportunity here to talk about what's going on in your other endeavors or things that you'd like to plug or promote. Let's start with you, Chris. Sure. Uh, if you've been enjoying some of the streaming content out there, like WandaVision and things like that, Head on over to the Gonna Geek Discord at gunnageek.com slash discord. We've been having some fun conversation about what some of these reveals may mean for the future of the MCU going forward. And there's a lot of fun debate. And if you're afraid of being spoiled, it's okay. We have a spoiler-free channel, and then we have a channel where spoilers are protected. So you can't go there and get spoiled. So you just come talk WandaVision and other TV with us. Uh, Chris, wow. Chris, would you like to promote again? No. <laughs> Sure, I would like to tell everyone to go to geeks.live and you can watch all the live content available on the Gunna Geek Network. And don't forget to go to audible.com and use promo code Gunna Geek Plus. That's Gunna Geek Plus at GunnaGeekPlus.com. 
I was going to edit that out, but we'll leave it in. Ask me, is there anything that you would like to play or promote? It's hard to follow that up because he's a true pro there. But I will say Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D., which you can find at GuineaGeek.com. We're in the process of going episode by episode through WandaVision. It's an amazing show, a lot more amazing than I thought it was going to be at first. And I'm glad that I get to watch it and talk about it with the ladies on Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D., and also, as as just a little hint, just as, as a little teaser, I, I don't know how much I can say, but I, I will say Saturday night, just two nights ago, I recorded my first audio drama. Ooh, that's mm. exciting. Yeah, yeah. I was cast in the audio drama and I got to be involved in the live table read, the live recording afterwards. It was really fun. I can't wait to do more of it. I, I know I have to brush up on my acting skills because like I have none, but it was a fun opportunity, and as it gets uh, published coming up here in the next month or two, I will definitely tell everybody about it. Look forward to that. Well, that's going to go and shut down the show. So for episode 365 of the official Gonna Geek show, I'm saying, hey, did you see the latest cameo in WandaVision? It was Chris. I'm Chris. We don't actually have an audible code, so don't do it. <laughs> And I'm SP saying, I, I really need an audible code. Can somebody give me an audible code? Aliens. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunnageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunnageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.